welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Meg Durham, and I'm so pleased you are joining me today. In this episode, we are celebrating Mother's Day by opening up a conversation about matrescence and why it matters. Before we begin, I wanted to acknowledge that Mother's Day can be a day filled with mixed emotions. For those who have lost their mother, Mother's Day can be a difficult and painful day. It can bring up feelings of sadness and a longing for their mother's presence. For others, it can be a reminder of their strained or complex relationship with their mother, which can lead to feelings of guilt or frustration. On the other hand, for those who have a close and loving relationship with their mother, Mother's Day can be a joyful and special occasion. It can be a time to express gratitude and appreciation for all the sacrifices and hard work that mothers do. However you are feeling this Mother's Day, it's important to remember that your emotions and experiences are valid. It's okay to feel a mix of emotions, and it's important to give yourself the permission to honour your feelings in a way that feels right for you. Whether it is celebrating with loved ones, reflecting quietly on your own, or seeking support from others, there is no right way to experience Mother's Day. With this in mind, I would like to dedicate this episode to all the mothers that work tirelessly to keep themselves and their family afloat. The long days, the long nights, the never-ending list of jobs, I see you and celebrate you. And a big shout out to my mum, Lee Denneher. I would not be the human or the mother that I am today without your ongoing love, support and encouragement. Thank you, Mum, and I love you dearly. Now on with the show. In this episode, we are going to be talking about matrescence and why it matters. And you might be thinking, what even is matrescence? I have never heard of that word before. Simply defined, matrescence describes a journey a woman takes through pregnancy, birth, the postnatal period and beyond. In many ways, it's like adolescence for mothers. Both stages include a surge in hormones, significant changes in identity, and an increased risk of mental health problems such as anxiety and depression. During this life transition, many women experience a mental tug of war between wanting to be the best mother they can be and also wanting to retain their identity as being an independent and competent woman. As Annabelle Crabb says in her book, The Wife Drought, we are expecting women to parent like they don't have a job and work like they don't have a family. And this tension plays out in schools across the country each and every day. Education is dominated by women, and of these women, 85% will become mothers. So it is time we acknowledge matrescence and why it matters. Today's guest, the warm and wise Dr. Sarah Mackay, is going to share with us a new way to think about pregnancy and motherhood. Sarah is a neuroscientist who translates brain research into strategies for professionals working in health, education and coaching. She received her PhD from Oxford 
And after four years of research, Sarah hung up her lab coat to set up a communications business bridging the gap between the lab and everyday life. She has been published extensively for consumers and professional audiences. She's been quoted in the Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, Grazia, Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, Mamma Mia and can be seen and heard on the ABC, SBS and Channel 7. Sarah's latest book, Baby Brain, The Surprising Neuroscience of How Pregnancy and Motherhood Sculpt Our Brains and Change Our Minds for the Better, is igniting powerful and much-needed conversations around the country. In this conversation, we discuss what is matrescence, the impact of pregnancy and motherhood on the brain, how we can better support working mothers, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Sarah Mackay. Sarah, welcome back to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Oh, thank you for having me back. I feel like a frequent flyer. Today, we're going to talk about your latest book, Baby Brain, the surprising neuroscience of how pregnancy and motherhood sculpt our brains and change our minds for the better. What inspired you to write this book? That is a really good question because I've been thinking, thinking about that in preparation for talking about the book. And there were really three ideas that are related to each other which came together. And the first was, this isn't my first book, it's my second book. And when I was writing my first book, looking at the female brains through the lifespan, I had a chapter in there on pregnancy and motherhood. And in the midst of writing that book, this was 2016, 2017, the very first paper ever was published looking at how women's brains change during the course of their first pregnancy. So this study took brain scans of women before and after their pregnancy to see if their brains changed and it turns out the changes were quite striking and also really meaningful in terms of how we parent and what, what you know what that means for motherhood so I've always kept an eye on that field of neuroscience because I thought it was so new and so exciting and so important and so relevant and it's just always struck me that this I've got a line that opens this book 85% of women become mothers that there's been this enormously overlooked field of you know, life experience that had never really been studied by neuroscience. But in the years since that first paper came out, this field has just exploded. There's been so much interesting and meaningful research, largely done by women, many of their mothers, that I thought needed to be brought out into the world. And that was the, brings me to the second reason, which was the conversations that pregnant women and mothers and parents have about our brains is pretty limited. It kind of extends to baby brain, cognitive decline, forgetfulness, the inability to pay attention. It's all very, very, very negative. And it's talked about as if it's a sort of scientifically just so story, an absolute contrast to the research that was coming out of the neuroscience. So I just thought we've got to just get the research out there and start changing these stories that we're telling ourselves or that we're learning about how our reproductive health can impact our cognition because it's quite the opposite of a lot of those, you know, sort of stereotypical colloquial stories we tell. And then the third reason really was the title of the book, this word baby brain, which is this colloquial term we use to describe becoming kind of forgetful and dozy. My boys are teenagers and I've got friends who still say they have baby brain. And I find that just such a negative story we tell ourselves. But interestingly, I never suffered from what we might call baby brain, but I never knew it was a thing. It wasn't a concept I had ever known about. 
until well after I'd had I'd had my boys and on and I thought, well, you know, I didn't have that. So what's what's kind of going on here? That was really I think most people write book, nonfiction book. There's a bit of a personal kind of agenda. There's a little bit of a selfishness involved. I wanted to explore that idea as well. Many women say they experienced baby brain. I didn't. I didn't know it was a thing. That contrasts with the science. And I just thought that was a really interesting conversation to be had and brought out of the research lab. And I think this is a time in our evolution as humans where people are really yearning for this information and really interested to have these conversations. And also the idea of matrix it's getting a lot more airplay at the moment and I remember going through school that was not a word that I knew matrescence is only something that I've learned in the last few years so can you explain to us what it is I actually spoke in the kind of the course of my research to one of the researchers who w- was part of popularizing that a woman called Aurelie Athlin who is a sort of a social scientist psychology researcher at Columbia University And she was telling me, so the word matrescence came about in the 1970s. It was coined by the same woman who coined the word doula, kind of caregiving that we give to mothers through pregnancy and birth and and early motherhood. Um, And Aurelie Athen revived the word. She kind of plucked it out of this 1970s literature and wrote about it for the first time since then in 2008. It was actually the same year I had my oldest son. And then it took a while for the word to go from the academic literature out into the kind of the public discourse. And that happened in around 2018 when a woman's health psychiatrist, Alexandra Sachs, had a TED talk on it. So 2018 was really when it first became popularized. So I'm not surprised you didn't learn about it at school. But I think it's a really great word because matrescence describes a process or a journey that's very similar to adolescence. And we're quite comfortable and familiar thinking about adolescence as a time of physical change, social change, you know, emotional change. And we also know adolescence is a time of neurological change. And what we're learning now is matrescence is the same. It is a process that we go through of physical change, of social change, of emotional change. And we also know it's a time of neurological change. And I think to understand becoming a mother as a process, not an event we experience and then kind of go back to who we were, but it's a, it's a really important developmental process for us as people and also us neurologically. So how does pregnancy change our brain? So the best way to probably describe it is to tell you how the research was done. So researchers in, in a lab in Spain, it's kind of around 2008, 2009, around the time matrescence kind of first made its, its reappearance was sort of talking about this, just a group of women sitting around talking about it one day and there's no research on what happens to women's brains during pregnancy. And so they very cleverly designed a study where they recruited women in who started off as being themselves and their friends who had never before been pregnant or experienced motherhood and they scanned the structure of their brains using MRI. So they just took an image of what their brains looked like and then the woman went away and got pregnant and that was a that was a long process because very easy for humans to get pregnant. They had to get a lot of women who became pregnant. And then they scanned those women's brains after that first pregnancy. And that experiment took about six years to gather that data. And they were quite clever because all good science experiments need a control. And so they scanned the brains of the male partners of those women or the fathers of the babies at the same time point before the woman fell pregnant and immediately after. And so then they figured they could decide if brains change, we'll know whether it's pregnancy, which is what the mother's experienced, or parenting, which is what the mother's and the father's experienced. Turns out pregnancy changed the woman's brains 
in an extraordinarily striking way, the biggest structural change that you see in women's brains takes place during pregnancy. And it's very cool what happens because it's in the parts of the brain that are involved with social cognition or reading social cues, things like theory of mind. What is someone else thinking that's different from what I'm thinking? What is someone else feeling? Being able to read, particularly when it comes to a baby, read and gauge what they feel, what they need. You, you get a whole lot better at that during motherhood. And it turns out that the changes in the brain that take place during pregnancy prime you to get really good at learning baby's cues. By baby's cues, what does a newborn do? They can't do much. They smell amazing. You've ever had a baby? The smell of a newborn baby, it's just like you want to eat them all up. They cry and they're kind of cute. So those social cues that babies have, mothers, women who have experienced pregnancy, their brains become very, very plastic and they become and almost become primed to learn and to read baby cues. So pregnancy is sculpting women's brains in preparation for the act of motherhood, for nurturing, for attaching with that baby and for figuring out what it thinks and needs. So as we're moving through our pregnancy, our brain is literally changing in preparation for the birth and motherhood. Just in the same way that your breasts start growing to get ready to feed the baby milk, your brain is changing because your mind is being prepared. And I think it's important to realise, we know this from mammals in the animal kingdom, mothers in the animal kingdom, their brains change too quite significantly during pregnancy. And that ensures when a sheep has a lamb or a, you know, a lioness has a, has a little lion cub that they uh, know what to do. Because there's no one there telling the sheep how to parent. They're not reading a book and they're expecting like we are. They haven't got, you know, doulas and mums and sisters and aunties. So they have various maternal behaviours which roll out once their little babies are born. And they're very species dependent. Sheep um, learn to recognise the smell of their lamb and the lamb learns to recognise the bleating of the mum. Dolphins, because they swim as soon as they're born, they're not like being carried around by their mums. They're similar. They learn to recognise their mother's whistles and the mother dolphins learn to recognise their baby's movement. So there's very species-specific behaviours which emerge when the baby emerges. But humans are a little bit different. We don't necessarily have these maternal instincts which just get slipped on as soon as the baby's born. Rather, we go into this state of kind of this absolute sort of state of plasticity and being primed to learn. A little bit like when little babies are in or infants are learning language and their brains are primed to learn language, they just absorb language, learn words really easily. Mothers' brains are primed by pregnancy to learn to read and understand their baby's cues really easily. And then maybe also the cues of other people around because we're allo-parenting mammals. We share parental care. And so it's all also about engaging and bringing in the care of all of the other adults around to help with that baby too. Gosh, as you're talking, Sarah, I'm think reflecting back on my early parenting days and those first few weeks when you have a baby and you think, oh my goodness, there is so much to learn. The learning curve is so steep and it's fascinating to think that my brain was already ready for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some really interesting studies have been done comparing the birth mothers with the fathers who haven't had the pregnancy and looking to see how do brains respond to babies' cries and babies' cuteness. And the fathers' brains or the non-birth parents' brains, the studies have been done of lesbian mums and also gay dads and foster parents and adoptive parents. I was as inclusive as I could be with the little bit of research that's been done. But we can, can look to see whether all adults' brains can learn to care for the baby, and they can. 
And we probably didn't need neuroscience to show us that because we've seen that. We all have experienced the non-birth mother caregivers who can love and nurture babies. But the birth mother's brain is primed to respond a little bit more rapidly and more flexibly and efficiently. So studies have been done looking at how different parts of the birth mother's brain communicate and they become very flexible and very efficient and learn very, very rapidly, which is really great. But that doesn't mean it feels like that necessarily when you have your first baby, but when you have your second baby, you probably can kind of look back and think about how they were quite different experiences. And part of that probably more than 10,000 hours of baby care. You're kind of a bit more relaxed the second time around because you kind of know what to do. And also all of those neurological changes that took place the first time don't necessarily happen the second time, but they've almost been kind of embedded in. You've kind of learned a lot of those maternal caregiving skills. Of course, you might need to deploy them in a slightly different way because it's a different little human who has different needs and what. But those first, I think those first few weeks are really interesting. They're very, you know, they feel like your soul has been torn out and turned upside down and like your whole life, your whole world has around this new little person. And, and the brain changes and the hormonal changes are all, you know, kind of map out quite nicely if we look at that point in time in terms of the behaviours that we experience. So we've gone through pregnancy, we've delivered, we've had this intense window in the newborn phase. How does motherhood in general, as time goes on, impact our brain? That's interesting. I think um, those first few days and weeks and months, as I said, they're a real sensitive time for learning. We can be quite hypervigilant. Our brain and our nervous system are kind of very, very on. And so we have very intense emotional experiences in that time. You know, I don't know whether you had that, had this absolutely when I used to think that the baby was going to roll down the stairs or fall, plop out of the window where you'd be driving the car and somehow it would fall out the door. Mother nature or evolution, mother nature is the word I use for evolution, is almost kind of ensured that we are hypervigilant and we're alert and we're on to take care of that baby. And that's really good because we want the baby to survive. It just might feel quite scary, you feel with anxiety, it might feel almost like you've got catastrophic intrusive thoughts. But over time, so long as you're remaining mentally healthy, those sort of feelings sort of decline and you become a little bit more kind of, you've gained a little bit of experience, you kind of know where you're at. We think that that's not so much the structural changes, but more this kind of dialing down of those stress responses and that hypervigilance. So we see that within the first couple of months. If those catastrophic feelings and thoughts and worries extend beyond that, then that could turn into something clinical that we'd need to be dealing with, like postnatal depression, anxiety, heaven forbid, not postnatal psychosis, which is a really serious psychiatric condition. But if we kind of look longer term beyond that, it's interesting. So the group of Spanish women and Dutch researcher who did the very first study looking at the structural changes brought the women back after a couple of years and then they brought them back six years later, those that they could had still kind of were able to retain and get back to the lab who hadn't had a second baby. That was also the key. And it turns out that their brain structures remained essentially changed through that time. So the brains didn't bounce back. Essentially, the structural changes that we saw straight after pregnancy were retained after six years. So pregnancy sculpted these mothers' brains and their brain stage stayed the same six years on. And interestingly, other researchers have come in and looked not at that same subset that were originally studied, but looked at brain scans of women in midlife, around my age, kind of late 40s, early 50s, and also even women in their 
70s, 80s and 90s and compared the brains of mothers versus women who have never experienced pregnancy or raising children. And there are still differences which can be detected in the structure and in the function of brains. So once a mother, always a mother. It's just fascinating to think about it from this neurobiology perspective of what's happening, how it's shaping us as women. And I'm curious to know, how does it impact the non-birth mothers or other parents that are caregiving if they haven't been through the pregnancy? But how does that shape or does it shape their brain? Yeah, that's a really good question because most of the changes I've talked about are structural, which you take a photo, an MRI of the brain and look to see if bits got bigger or smaller or changed. We can also use different types of brain scanning or brain recording techniques, which look at how different parts of the brain communicate with each other. Now, the structural brain changes in the far, remember the first study looked at women, the first pregnancy and looked at their male partners. And in comparison to the mothers, the father's brains didn't change in structure at all. But what the researchers then went and did was they recruited a whole lot more dads and looked just at the dads' brains to see whether there was any variation within those men. They weren't in comparison to the women, there was hardly any. But if you zoom on in and like kind of start going through that data in a bit more detail, they did see some really minor changes in terms of structure. And it was really interesting because it was dose dependent. And by dose dependent, I mean the more engaged the fathers were, the more hours they did of one-on-one baby care, the more engaged they were with their babies and their infants, the more their brains changed. Some brothers' brains like grew slightly, some fathers' brains shrunk slightly, some didn't change at all. Whereas all of the women's brains changed strikingly significantly. You didn't have to try and figure out whether there was a change there at all. And so that's quite interesting. But other studies have gone in and looked to see, oh, and what's really interesting about the men, and lots of, you know, you get these, these men that are all kind of concerned about their testosterone levels, got these high T level guys. One absolutely striking and consistent around the world change that takes place in men's physiology when they become fathers is that their testosterone levels plummet. They go all the way down. And that is correlated again, dose-dependent drop is correlated to the degree of caregiving. It's almost as if they can't go from kind of dating and mating high tea to caring for a baby in low tea. They kind of go from cage to dad. And that's pretty predictable and that happens in various populations around the world. Studies have also been done. They're very, very small because the main one, which would have been the most interesting, I think, was started just before COVID in Monash in Melbourne. And they were looking at lesbian mothers. So they had a birth mother and then the other, the female partner of that mother. So two mums essentially, one the birth mum, one the non-birth mum. And they were looking to see things like, do both women report an experience of baby brain? Do both women report forgetfulness? Are both women experiencing postnatal depression or enhanced well-being or poor well-being, et cetera, et cetera? And there wasn't a whole lot of difference there between the birth mother and the other mother that was there doing the care. Obviously, the other mother's brain doesn't change structurally because she hasn't experienced pregnancy, but because she's a human, an adult taking care of the baby, you can see changes taking place in how different brain regions communicate. Not dissimilarly, actually, to how the men's brains change, the father's brains change. And one final study, I think, which was really cool, looked at adoptive mums or foster mums versus birth mothers to look to see how their brains changed in response to loving and cuddling their baby. So put some electrodes on your scalp, record your brain waves, 
while you're all, you know, interacting with your baby and playing with it and, you know, giving it all the kind of little playful loves and cuddles. And the birth mother's brains and the foster or adopted mother's brains responded exactly in the same way. So mothers, however they became mothers, absolutely the same way, ability to be able to respond to their babies in the ways the babies need, which is essentially to be, have their cues recognised and, and to be cared for. So I think that that's great. Mother Nature has ensured that, you know, we could have a village of adults who are absolutely capable of taking care of that baby. It may just be that the birth mother learns it a little bit quicker. Yeah, I love how you've highlighted that dose relationship, that the more you're involved, the more you're experienced, the more you pick up those cues, the more it's going to have the impact. And I'm just curious to know, maybe over time that we'll see generational changes in men because once upon a time, men was a bit more hands-off kind of parenting. It was left to somebody else and I'm seeing the changes. We've seen the changes even on the TV with Bluey and Bluey's dad, that things are changing. One of the studies was interesting and it's hard to make a lot of it, but they looked at fathers and they compared Spanish fathers and they compared American fathers and the Spanish dads get tons of parental leave and were pretty engaged, whereas the American fathers were largely don't have parental leave, barely parental leave for women, you know, and depending on which state you live in and which company you work for, et cetera, et cetera. But there were differences in terms of how the Spanish father's brains showed more changes than the American father's brains. And they suggested perhaps this was to do with the dose-response kind of relationship, and perhaps that was due to paternity leave. Although, I mean, that we can't say that for sure. It might be a bit of a stretch, but it certainly makes a good case. The greatest predictor of childhood well-being is parental well-being and parents having the capacity having the wherewithal, having the emotional regulation capacity to be able to respond to a baby's emotional needs. And, you know, you kind of need present healthy, well, safe, secure family network for that to be able to happen. And that really leads me into this next idea of as we understand the brain and how it's changing, how can we as a community better support women in this transition and families really? Yeah. Well, if you think about, I kind of called them mother helpers. There's a researcher, she works in kind of primate science, Sarah Bluffer-Hardy, who's written a lot about motherhood and a lot about primates and a lot about evolution. And she has this great line in one of her books, something like, mother nature never intended us to parent alone. And you can do all these comparisons. And I think it's kind of really interesting to do comparisons between different species because we're all mammals when it comes down to it to look to see animals that are raised in herds like sheep and cows versus primates like us that carry our babies around and feed them and have to keep them warm versus animals that stand up and run away, can run away and get lost from their mother straight away and kind of do comparisons around that. And it's pretty clear that our species, humans, are alloparents and that all parents are perfectly capable and able to take care of that baby And we always traditionally, and if you look into our evolutionary past, we weren't raising babies alone. Women weren't raising babies alone in big houses, you know, surrounded by high gates with with no helpers. We've always had people there to help feed us and to make sure we're healthy and well and nurtured so we can nurture the baby. We've had people around to help, you know, share those night wake-ups. We've had people who, you know, can go out and kind of gather the food and bring that home, you know, and we're now someone to go out and get the groceries and bring that home and to kind of 
nurture the mother. So it's almost like we we surround the baby and the mother and the parents and the family. We should, we need to really think. I think, and I quite like taking kind of an ecological perspective on it to think of families as a little ecosystem where everyone relies on everyone else and everyone's health and well-being is intimately entwined. It's not mother versus baby. Should mum go back to work? Is baby more important, mother more important? It's not like that. We're so intimately entwined and the way to ensure the health of the ecosystem is to ensure that it's well supported and it's well nourished, not just relying on this one sole human caregiver, this mum, who may have to do a lot of work because she's gone through the pregnancy and she may be breastfeeding, but that doesn't negate the, the biological need that we have for other people around. And I think if we kind of started to understand that and to go back to this idea that you were talking about, understand that this is a process of matrescence. We understand how important it is to nurture teenagers through puberty and through adolescence. There's this process and one of the most important things we can do is to put social frameworks and architecture around them and support those people as they go through that process. It's not a one-off event. And if we sort of start thinking about parenting in that same way and just extend a bit more kind of empathy and care to people who are really in the weeds. And as I'm listening, I'm thinking there's such an opportunity here for the workplace. You know, I'm thinking about schools where women will leave for maternity leave. They've left a full-time job. They generally will re-enter as a part-time job. But I haven't seen many examples of really honouring the transition and how capacity has changed. And what I've seen time and time again is the woman trying to work like she doesn't have a child and try to work at that full-time rate and then she's actually working part-time. And so there's actually quite a disconnect when it comes to re-entering the workplace. Parent like you don't have a job and have a job like you don't have children. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You hear that. And I think that's such an apt way way to think about it. And I think especially a profession like teaching where giving everything to your children at home and then to be going into the workplace and giving to other people's children and nurturing, bringing up other people's children with the parents of those children looking over your shoulder. I think within education, that must be one of the hardest things, this constant kind of regard from other people as to how you're helping raise their children. And maybe, you know, we need to kind of go back to these old ideas. I don't know. This is just off the top of my head, recognising that we're all part of one community. We're all part of one ecosystem, all part of one village and kind of find ways we can to support and nurture everyone through those processes. I also think we're pretty hard on ourselves, women. (laughs) We don't always give ourselves a break. And I was talking to someone about this recently, this idea that especially with your first, you think you're going to have the baby and you'll bounce back to who you were. And your brain has literally changed structure. Your body will have changed. Your relationships with everyone from your partner to your own parents, whatever your relationship was with your parent, all those relationships change. And there's another whole human to have a relationship with. And you can't go back. <laughs> You've got to go through. It's a process. And I think sometimes we forget about that, that there's a whole lot of identity shifts in there and matrescence encapsulates that that identity shift. And I sometimes I don't think you're prepared for that. I wasn't prepared for that. I had the most straightforward babies. They hate, they slept. They never caused me any issues. They just were so straightforward. But oh my God, like coming to terms with the, this new identity, this new person I was. Um, and we didn't have the word matrescence then. We didn't know anything about the neurological changes. 
there was a bit out there around and, you know, I had mother's groups and you kind of had a bit of support, but I didn't realize that I was going to become a new person. And for me, I kept saying, it's not, it's the boys are fine. It's me. I haven't figured out who I am yet. And I think it's only now my boys are teenagers. Wouldn't have been able to write this book on motherhood (laughs) back then because I was in the middle of it. I was in the middle of unpacking and unraveling and sewing myself back together again. It's only now I can reflect and see the process of becoming a mother was as important as taking care of babies. Yes, that is so powerful. And I reflect on my early years of that tunnel of there's always more work to do and just surviving. And a part of it was a grief. And I only realized this because I was happening to do some research and I was reading a book about grief. And I was like, this is interesting because I feel like there was a part of me that grieved the me when I wasn't responsible for somebody else's needs, when I wasn't responsible for their shelter or for their food and to feel like I was constantly on, like this relentlessness. I still remember week four at this moment, it was clarity. I remember sitting on the couch feeding for the hundredth time thinking, this is relentless. This is the first thing in my life where I can't have a break. I can't take a break. I can leave, but I still have the responsibility of that. And then as soon as you leave, you, all you're doing is wanting to get back to them. Well, especially when there's a little baby, like you're so consumed, um, you, you can't think or focus on anything else. I remember when I had to leave, my husband got a big promotion when my oldest, Harry, was maybe three or four weeks old, about that same age, and my mum had come and gone back to New Zealand. And I was invited to this dinner. Now I'm like, I should have just taken the baby with me. Like, what were we thinking? Now I would be saying to the wife of the partner or the woman who's, I would just take the baby. We decided, I decided I had to leave my home. So we had to book a night nurse, a professional nanny to come for a few hours so I could go to this dinner in the city. Why I didn't take the baby now just seems utterly ridiculous. He would have just lain there and slept. And I just was so nervous. And then I, and I cried the whole way into the city in the taxi. Taxi driver was freaking out because I was beside myself that I was away from him, but all I at the same time wanted was a break. Yeah, gosh, I remember those days of thinking, would you just go to sleep? I just want you to sleep. They finally get to sleep, and then I find myself scrolling, looking at photos of them. <laughs> yeah, or standing <laughs> watching them sleep. But I think that that's part of this change that happens to our brain. We have this reprioritization this reorganization, our structure, brain structures have changed so that our mind is focused on this baby. And there's an evolutionary mandate for that because we are responsible for keeping this little human alive. can't feed itself, can't keep itself warm and dry and safe. And so that's, we've got this reprioritization. And I think that that is a big part of where this idea of baby brain comes from, that especially these ideas of forgetfulness or kind of vagueness or fogginess. Well, of course, we've got the lack of sleep, but we've got this enormous new focus and memory depends on attention, what information we take in and what we filter out. And there's a whole lot that we're doing and some women are doing perhaps far more than they should, that emotional labor or you know the mental load of motherhood. You can't remember everything and you're probably not going to remember things which don't matter because you're so consumed. And then I think if we do forget something, you go out and you forget nappies, it's a catastrophe. It is an absolute. And so then you'll berate yourself. Oh, well, of course, I've got baby brain. Oh, you know, of course, became a mum. I'm mumsy and dozy and dopey. I should have expected this. 
and we get really down on ourselves instead of understanding that our brains have taken on this enormous new role. We can't do everything. We can't remember everything. And we are not experiencing cognitive decline. We've just refocused. Gosh, it's so fascinating to think how a young person can really change our brains, change the brains of the people who are around them. I'm also thinking about grandparents. There's so many grandparents that's so involved have a high dose and they would be experiencing something. Yeah, well, there's some studies that have been done that have looked at grandparents as well, not grandfathers, sorry to say, to the dear old dads out there. But um, there was a study that was done reasonably recently that looked at how the brains of grandmothers responded to their children. So, you know, pop the grand, pop Nan and the brain scanner and let's see which parts of her brain become active or not. And they'll, they'll show this extreme level of activation to photos of their own grandchild versus random photos. And very much in those brain areas, which is similar to the mothers, involved with empathy, theory of mind, reward, that kind of wanting and needing to be with, with that child. So again, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it would be highly likely that, again, it would be dose dependent. So the more engaged they are with and interacting with that child and that relationship, the more that their brains would show a response and you know to, to those babies. So, Gosh, it feels like you've just opened the floodgates of ideas and ways to think about it. You know, we are all capable of the caregiving. It's not just the biological birth parent, all of our brains, you know, are able to respond. There's some really interesting research done and some of the labs looking to see how the brains of the mothers changed in advance of their baby being born in terms of thinking about the baby as a future person and who are they going to become and who will they be and what will my life be like with them. And also the same looking to see how the brains of the dads changed when thinking about their little baby as a future person while their wives or while their female partners are still pregnant. It was really interesting because the father's brains actually show quite different responses than the mothers did. The fathers were actually more capable of thinking about their child as this kind of future psychological agent. They call this kind of measure mind-mindedness. Thinking about this future person that you're going to help raise. The mothers kind of did that, but what we think is the mothers don't have to kind of use their imagination and constantly be thinking forward about life, what life will be with this future baby, because they're kind of in the sort of stuck in the moment. They've got the baby inside them and they've got the physical movements and they've got the hormonal signals and they've got the constant social regard from other people, noticing that they're pregnant. They've got the maternity care appointments. Whereas all the fathers have is the ability to kind of imagine what the future will be like. And the father's brain started to respond differently to thinking about their future baby in a way that the mothers didn't. So I think that's quite remarkable as well. So we, we almost start parenting mothers, birth mothers, fathers' brains start to parent before the baby even arrives. Oh gosh, thank you so much for diving into this topic and for opening up this conversation because it's going to give us this whole new understanding. And when we see people that we love go through this transition, we can come at it with such a more open, empathetic and intelligent approach to pregnancy and motherhood. To wrap up this incredible conversation, Sarah, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Well, gosh, okay. Yep, I think so. <laughs> I am inspired by... The work of the women in the neuroscience space have driven this field from being niche, 
mumsy and neglected to where it's got in such a short amount of time just because, you know, they were interested. That's probably more of a paragraph than a sentence. (laughs) They do inspire me, though. When life feels hard? Jump in the sea, jump in the ocean. You know that about me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) An underrated skill is? Oh, being able to sleep whenever you need want to. I'm very good at that. (laughs) All your favourite topics are coming up and I'm looking forward to. Having a weekend away with my teenage boys because I'm now suffering the fate of every mammalian mother and that it is kind of hard, especially for my oldest son, to, you know, share family time with him and writing the book and seeing him become so extraordinarily independent and his own person. I'm almost now grieving the early years of his childhood. And so I'm looking forward to an Easter weekend where he's stuck with us. <laughs> and just being able to like, just because I just, if I look at him, I just like, oh, you magnificent boy. And yeah, so I'm looking forward to having a bit of a forced family time with him. Sarah, thank you so much for bringing this book into the world. And thank you so much for being guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. Oh, you're so welcome. I hope this conversation has helped you to get a better understanding of the way pregnancy and motherhood impacts women each and every day. Sarah's book is titled Baby Brain, the surprising neuroscience of how pregnancy and motherhood sculpt our brains and change our minds for the better, and is now available online and in stores. To learn more about Sarah and the incredible work she does in the world, see the show notes for more details. If you love the show, please share it with anyone you think would benefit from listening. Or reach out to me on Instagram or LinkedIn and let me know what resonated most with you. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak, learn about my game-changing wellbeing programs or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 81. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week. And until then, take care and take deliberate action.